Well, this morning we are continuing through our study of the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapter 4. And let me turn there in my Bibles. The scene, uh, if you've been in the church for some time, is, is no doubt a story with which you are familiar. My earliest memory, I was trying to remember, and I don't remember it in like a concrete day and time kind of way, but I can remember very clearly as a child um, having this story told to me on a flannel graph. You guys remember the old flannel graphs, the flannel board, and they'd put the picture up there? And it was the story of Jesus and the woman at the well, which was very boring to me as a child. I'll be very honest. Jesus in conversation with a woman at a well didn't have quite the same appeal to me as David and Goliath <laughs> or Daniel in the lion's den. There was this element of danger there. There was a great, uh, it was more exciting, I guess, is the, just the best way to put it. But in revisiting the story this week, I just was filled with a great amount of excitement as I read and thought about this story. I'm going to go ahead and read part of it right now, and then we'll spend some time um, thinking about it together. I'm in John chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, this is an important note, but the sixth hour it meant around noontime. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the, into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water, and the well is deep. Where do you go? Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give, give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And we'll pause right there. There's a lot in here. We spent about three weeks on Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, and I think we could probably easily spend twice that on this conversation. There's a lot of weighty ideas here. Now, relax, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) We'll move on. But I do want to spend at least one Sunday on this very significant. But in order to do that, I really can't break this down in a verse-by-verse kind of way. There's a lot in here. And the verse that, that I really want us to concentrate on is this one. Jesus says that the Father is, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. A couple statements there. He says that we must worship God in spirit and truth. And it says that God is seeking people who worship him in this way. So for me, as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, when I hear the God of the universe say, you must worship me in this way, and I am actively seeking people who will worship me in this way, it quickly then uh, zeroes in on my mind, well, what does that mean exactly? If this is something where God would say, you must and I'm seeking people who do this, what does it mean exactly to worship God in spirit and truth? I want to be pleasing to my God. I want to offer him something that will be pleasing to him. And God is saying here that this is the way to worship me. And so all of us here are gathered this morning explicitly for the purpose of worshiping God. And God is speaking to us out of his word and saying, you must worship me in this way, in spirit and truth. What does that mean exactly? That's what we want to spend time on this morning. But first, just a little bit about this interesting dynamic surrounding this conversation. It's the noon hour, which is is something for us as Americans and living as we do in 2020 to just gloss right over this hugely important detail. Uh, Nowadays, if I want water, I just go to the sink and I uh, flip it on. But in those days, you had to haul water from the local village well. Nobody had water in their homes, at least not at that level of the society. And so everybody in the village would go out to the, not everybody, but typically it was the job of the woman in the home. And the women would go to the well early in the morning to draw water. And it was actually, in those days, in that culture, it's well documented that this is probably one of the major social activities of the day. This was a chance for you to meet up with your friend and go to the well together. And you would talk and back and forth. You would laugh. You'd tell stories. You'd say about what's going on with your family, what's going on with yours. This was actually a really important time for the women of the village to catch up and to talk and to enjoy each other's company and to help each other with the laborious task of hauling water. It was, a, it was drudgery, but it was made lighter and more easy because they were all doing it together with their friends. But this woman comes to the well when? At noon absolute heat of the day, and she's all by herself. The great crowd of people coming from the town of Sychar to the well, that had come and gone way earlier in the morning. 
And she came to that at the noon hour. Why? Well, because in that town, she was infamous. She was known for being a person who was a sinner. And the Samaritan culture, just like the, Jew, the Jewish culture that we read about in our New Testaments, was marked by an extremely works-based, judgmental, legalistic approach to religion. And this woman was known in that town for being uh, a sinner. She's infamous. She was an, an unwelcome person in these gatherings. And so she's friendless. She's alone. She comes in the heat of the day to gather water because she didn't want to encounter those other women, probably, and she, they wouldn't have enjoyed her company or vice versa. But then as she draws within, the well, within sight of the well, and she's hoping to find it all to herself, it's not. There's a man there. And judging by his dress and overall appearance, he's a Jewish man. Well, she probably thought to herself, at least I won't have to interact with him. <laughs> Here, at least, it's socially acceptable to just ignore one another. This is the plan. Not only because they are men and women, and men and women in that culture at that time did not interact, but because there was also a great social uh, divide between Samaritans and Jews. This divide was racial, it was religious, and it was cultural. And it was unbreakable in that day. Uh, they were anathema to one another. And so she shows up at the well, and to her surprise, this Jewish man, whose name was Jesus, breaks with long-standing social animosity and all the mores of their society to speak up and ask her a question. He asks her for some water. And she answers him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from a woman of Samaria? And this is one of those times where I get frustrated with the limits of the written word. Uh, because one of the difficulties I sometimes experience when I'm reading my Bible is that so much of communication between human beings goes beyond simply the words that we use. Right? Tone and body language convey a lot of meaning when we're talking. And for example, there's a vast difference between, wow, you are a real genius, aren't you? And somebody saying, wow, you're a real genius, aren't you? <laughs> right? They're the exact same string of words. But they mean the opposite of one another, right? But on paper, they read exactly the same. And the difference is the tone I used. So when the Samaritan woman answers, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from a woman of Samaria? It's hard to know if Jesus' request for a drink is just an unexpected. Is she just mystified? Is this a genuine inquiry? How, why is it that you're doing this? Or is it more unwelcome? Is, is she spitting back an answer that's actually hostile? It's hard to know, and maybe even un, impossible. Is she confused by his request, or is she being sarcastic? One way of reading this, perhaps, is that all of her Jewish life, all of her life, Jewish men have acted like she is a dirty non-person. And now, after a lifetime of giving her and her people the cold shoulder, this Jewish man has the unmitigated gall to ask her to do him a favor. If this is how we read this, then probably what she said is something like this, give you a drink? <laughs> Boy, 
you have some nerve, mister. How is it that you or Jew are going to ask me for a drink? You want me to get you a drink? Yeah, right. Another possibility is that his request is just so out of the norm, so contrary to how Jews and Samaritans have always related, that she is at first just kind of flummoxed. She's confused. Is she just addressing the elephant in the room when she points out how strange and unexpected his behavior is? It's not clear, and again, maybe we can never know. But what follows is a very interesting and weighty exchange between a woman who has no idea who she is talking to and a man, Jesus, who knows the woman he is talking to even better than she knows herself. Jesus is going to spend a lot of this conversation explaining to the woman who he is, that he's the living water, that he's the savior of the world, the Messiah. And also, he's going to make perfectly plain to her that he also knows exactly who she is, that she is a sinner with a deep soul thirst and someone in need of a savior. And the story will have just the happiest of endings where this woman comes to a place of sincere belief in Jesus as the savior of the world. And again, we don't have time this morning to work our way verse by verse through their entire conversation. But again, as people who are engaged this morning in an act of worship, I want to zero back in on at least this one phrase. I want to chew all the flavor out of this idea this morning. What does it mean to worship God in spirit and truth? A common theme throughout the Gospels is the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. There are a lot of cultural, ethnic, and historical, religious reasons why these two groups hated each other. And without diving too deeply into that pool, let me just explain briefly some of those differences because they really set the stage for what Jesus says to this woman about worshiping God in spirit and truth. Both Jews and Samaritans recognized that God had commanded their forefathers to worship him in a special place. But they disagreed on where that place was. And this arose in part from the fact that Jews at the time of Jesus accepted what is now our entire Old Testament as divinely inspired revelation. But the Samaritans only recognized the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as having come from God. So the Jews' Bible contained God's command in 2 Samuel 5 and 2 Chronicles 6 to establish the temple in Jerusalem. But no such command existed in the scriptures that Samaritans viewed as authoritative. The Samaritans noted that the first place Abraham had built an altar to God was at a place called Shechem, at the base of Mount Gerizim. So they concluded that Mount Gerizim, as the very first place where Abraham was called to build an altar to God, was the holy site, and not Jerusalem. So the Samaritans viewed God's presence as especially powerful on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews held that, no, it's actually on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. This is why the woman said to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place that people ought to worship. Nowhere up to this point, by the way, has Jesus actually said that to her. But nevertheless, she assumes that he is like all other Jews, and so she feels comfortable putting words in his mouth. 
His answer, however, must have been surprising to her because he rejects the entire debate, saying that the hour was coming and indeed had, in fact, arrived when the very question of which mountain they should worship on was moot. He says to her, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He then confronts her notions of what constitutes acceptable worship to God with a brand new thought. He says that those who worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. And again, the central question for our time this morning is what does that mean? Well, first of all, what does it mean to worship in spirit? Some Bible readers down through the years have misunderstood what this means by wrongly assuming that when Jesus speaks of spirit, he had in mind the Holy Spirit, meaning that it is only by means of the Holy Spirit that worship is made possible. And we see where they might get that from because that is, of course, true. Nothing spiritual is possible except by the Holy Spirit's work within a believer. Nevertheless, that is not the meaning, I don't believe, of what Jesus is saying here. For here, Jesus is speaking of spirit generally, and not the Holy Spirit specifically. For the Samaritan woman, her notions of what constituted true worship were totally wrapped up in a physical place, and the rites, rituals, and sacrifices that happened there. In other words, her notion of what worship constituted was entirely carnal, You go to a specific place at a specific time, and you do certain things. And that's how she understood worship. And Jesus says, no, you must worship in spirit. Jesus corrects her by teaching that in the age which he was bringing into existence, that the place of worship would no longer matter at all. A man or woman would not worship merely by being in the right place and doing certain things there. The believer would worship in his or her spirit, which could take place anywhere. To worship God in spirit is to recognize that our very person is the sacred place that God occupies. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit that is in you, whom you have received from God? This, uh, this verse alone, and there are many verses like this, would have been very controversial to the people, to this woman at the well and to her uh, religious peers on the Jewish side. Paul is saying here something very dramatic. It's not Mount Gerizim or the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Your very body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God occupies his people. That's the sacred space. So according to Jesus and Paul, the temple of God is neither in Jerusalem nor Gerizim. God inhabits his people. God is spirit in nature. He's not made of stuff like wood or metal. He is spirit, and as such, he wants to be worshipped in spirit. True worship occurs only when that part of human beings, their spirit, which gives us the capacity to draw before God in worship, finds itself praising him. Praising him for his love, his wisdom, his beauty, his excellence, truth, holiness, compassion, mercy, grace, all these things. When our heart responds to that, whether we're in the cab of a pickup truck or in the sanctuary of the church or at work, it doesn't matter. God calls us to worship him in spirit. 
William Barclay once wrote, The true, the genuine worship is when man, through his spirit, attains to friendship and intimacy with God. True and genuine worship is not to come to a certain place. It is not to go through a certain ritual or certain religious practices. It is not even to bring certain gifts. True worship is when the spirit, the immortal and invisible part of a believer, speaks to and meets with God who is immortal and invisible. Uh, I remember when I first took my pastorate in Florida, they had a room dedicated in that building as the prayer room. And inside the prayer room, there was a couch and an end table and some, uh, I think there were a couple chairs, it doesn't matter. Uh, But I asked somebody, why is this the prayer room? And they said, well, we just want a space dedicated to prayer. And I asked somebody, I said, what has been your experience in the prayer room? And she said, well, I just feel, I, I feel like uh, it's just a more special presence when I'm in the prayer room praying. <laughs> and I'll tell you what I did, and it was controversial. I tore that prayer room sign right off the door. <laughs> I did away with the prayer room. Because what they were doing in their mind, incrementally, by slight degrees, was to say there is a special place where you must go where your prayers are more listened to, where there is more power attached to your prayers. Just in a slight way, it sounded good. We need to have a place dedicated and set aside for the purpose of prayer. But what that had the effect of doing, at least in the heart of the one woman I talked to, was to say that other places were non-sacred, Other places, the prayers were not as powerful, or you would not feel the presence of God there, or whatever. And what that did was essentially create, I pray in the prayer room. (laughs) This is the Mount Gerizim and the Mount Jerusalem that was beginning to play out in her mind. And God says, no, you must worship me in spirit. I'm not especially present in any particular place, or on any particular day or time. He is not more present here in the sanctuary than he will be tomorrow morning when you're at work. He is both places, and he calls us to worship him in spirit in both places. I remember once feeling confused because it seemed to me that the first and the second command of the Ten Commandments were identical. The first one is, of course, you shall have no other gods before me. And then the second one, and I'm paraphrasing here, says, you shall not make for yourself any idols or graven images. And I used to think to myself, aren't they both kind of saying the same thing? You shall have no God, and you shall have no idols or graven images. Well, no, they aren't saying the same thing. The first command is that you will worship the right God. And the second is calling us to worship him in the right way. In other words, God wants us to worship him and him alone, but he also wants us to worship him in spirit and not by bowing before any image that's meant to represent him. And this same spirit by which God is represented by an idol or a graven image can be extended to an edifice, a building, a particular place. I used to, I worked for about a decade in a Christian camping ministry, and I know the powerful emotional attachment that can come with camp, 
where people just feel like on that mountain I had a particularly close experience with God. And they come to mistakenly believe that that place is special rather than what happened there. (laughs) And that they can get back to that place with God by coming back to a place. Now, I'm a big believer in camping ministry. I'm a big believer in church. But I do think that we can attach the same sort of graven image mentality to such a place as we can just as well to uh, an, an actual carved idol. And we need to constantly be on guard against this impulse. Or we can attach it to a certain day, that Sunday is the day where God is. But Monday through Saturday, uh, other things master me, other things occupy my mind. We see an example of this, by the way, in the Old Testament. In Numbers 21, we read this story. It says, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from, from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now the Israelites kept this object for hundreds of years. It became a sacred object to the Israelites. And then all the way up in 2 Kings 18, hundreds of years later, we read this. And Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah poles. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for, until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. Do you see what he had to do? He had to destroy something that God had actually brought into existence because it had become something other than, than what God had intended. It became the object of their worship, not the the occasion to remember God's goodness or faithfulness to him. The the snake became a stand-in for God, a proxy, and they were not worshiping him in spirit. They were actually worshiping it. This brings us to the second uh, part here. So that's what spirit is. Spirit is that we worship God not in a specific place or at a specific time. We have no no proxy, no stand, no in-between, no image of God that we worship to as though we were talking to God. And the second means in truth. And there's also confusion about this, I believe. Um, Very often with spirit, people think Holy Spirit when really God is talking about worshiping him in that part of yourself, that's your spirit. And in truth, um, you know, when, when you read, uh, teach through the uh, armor of God passage in Ephesians 6, when you come to the belt of truth, and you say, well, what is that? What does that mean? Very often people say, well, that must mean the word of God. But then later it says that the word of God is the sword. So either he mentions the word of God twice, or he means something different when he says the belt of truth. The belt of truth in the armor of God passage is not about God's word, although God's word is truth. I'm not saying that. 
what is meant by the armor of God belt of truth, or what's meant when Jesus tells this woman you must worship him in truth, it means sincerity. Most often, that's, that's really what's meant. Uh, in other words, this woman, in her religious expression, the Samaritans, and this would also be true for Judaism at that time, uh, when Jesus said, these people speak praises to me, but their hearts are far from me, they saw no problem with that in Judaism. Judaism was all about what you did, not the spirit with which you did it. You see, you could, do, you could make the sacrifice while your heart was totally depraved, and by making the sacrifice, you made up for your depraved heart. And what Jesus is saying to this woman is you must worship in spirit and in truth, in sincerity. It's not enough if you live a life of great sin, but then you go and you make a sacrifice to cover the sin. All the while, you still love the sin. You just fear God. And so you do what's necessary. And so really what you are is you are really and truly somebody in love with the sin who must every once in a while pay the fiddler so you can keep dancing. And Jesus says that's not worshiping in truth. That's not a sincere heart that desires God and the things of God. You're not worshiping in truth. When you love sin, you just have to pay God off. That's not worship. That's not honoring to God. So we must first approach God truthfully. That is honestly, wholeheartedly. Uh, This is why if uh, somebody ever were to tell me, I I just don't love God. (laughs) My first answer should never be, well, just act like you do. Just just pretend. Just, Just do the things you would do if you did love God. Maybe there's a place for, for that, maybe, but the place where you f- should first start is by just coming to God in all honesty and saying, my heart is totally wrong. I'm broken inside. I don't feel towards you what I should. You see, that's worship in truth. That's a broken and contrite heart. God is not honored when we pretend, when we play act, when we're hypocritical. And that's what's playing out in this woman's life. What is she talking about worshiping on Mount Gerizim when Jesus has already revealed that he knows that her life is not about worship? It's about these other things. There's sin in her life. She is, and I think when he brings that up, she kind of throws this question out there as a smokescreen. I don't want to talk about (laughs) that stuff. Let's have a theological debate instead. That's better. And so Jesus brings it back home and says, you've got to worship in spirit and in truth. I think it could mean some other things, though, too. Let me briefly entertain two before we close. A second thing that the worshiping God in truth could mean is that we must worship on the basis of biblical revelation. Mark 7, 6, uh, where Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me goes on to condemn those who have substituted the teachings of men for the doctrines of Scripture. We see that same thing in that same passage. John 17, 17 proclaims, Thy word is truth. If we are to worship in truth, our worship must be in agreement with the Bible. I, I think a true sermon is a faithful teaching of what the Scriptures say. Its purpose is to direct the worshiper's attention to the truth of God and invite them to order their lives in accordance with it. 
So I think these two things are in play here. You've got to worship me with sincerity of heart. Your worship must be in agreement with the word of God. A part of, I think, what Jesus is confronting here, perhaps, is the very wrong notion that Samaritans had that God's word, his revelation, was limited to just those first five books. He does this very explicitly by saying, you worship what you don't know. <laughs> you worship God without the full revelation of God. Jews know. They have all those Old Testament canon of books. This is the truth. And you're not living in light of the truth because you don't yet accept the truth in its entirety. So certainly part of what's in play here is the, is the inspired word of God. But I think perhaps most importantly, the capstone thing, the thing that has to be understood when Jesus is saying you must worship in spirit and truth, is that Jesus never presents himself in the Bible as just bringing what is needed. He always presents himself as what is needed. And I've brought this up before, but Jesus doesn't say, I have the bread of life. He says, I am the bread. I don't have the light. I am the light. I don't know the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. At every point, Jesus doesn't just say he has what is needed. He points to himself as what is needed. And so ultimately, the thing that this woman must know above all else is that he is the very personification of the truth, and he is to be her object of worship. She finishes this conversation. Well, that doesn't finish it, but the finishes the part that we read by saying, I know that the Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will reveal all things. And Jesus says, you're, you're talking to him. I am that guy. I am the truth. And so when he's talking about worshiping in spirit and truth, certainly part of this that he is going to challenge and confront her with is that her worship must terminate on him. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So, what does that mean for us here at State Road Advent Christian Church? We have no graven images. <laughs> we have the word of God. We believe in Jesus. I, I think that uh, this is really one of the strengths of State Road Advent Christian Church. Uh, in the couple of years I've been pastoring here, and as I've gotten to know you as a people, you are a group of very sincere Christ followers. And I think you are a people who worship in spirit and truth. I really do believe that for the most part. But I think that an unguarded strength is a double weakness. And every once in a while, we need these reminders from the Word to keep thinking about God in these ways. That we can continue to be a people who worship God in spirit and truth. And I was certainly challenged in my own mind this week too because as a pastor, you tend to put so much weight on Sunday mornings. <laughs> and in this strange season of the pandemic where Sunday mornings haven't been what they used to be, it's really challenged me to think about how every day is sacred in the eyes of God. That really, even in my own heart, I had begun to feel the impulse to make of Sunday a graven image, a stand-in for God. This is a place and a time where we would meet with God in a special way. And maybe on Monday morning, I could wake up and be more relaxed spiritually. Right? <laughs> and that's not right. That's not worshiping in spirit. That's not worshiping in truth. There's a lack of sincerity there. And so I've been certainly challenged, and I think that we as a church can be challenged by these words, which I do think we are living out in great measure. 
But just to be reminded of these things again is good this morning. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I am grateful for my brothers and sisters here. I'm grateful for the way that they have challenged me and pointed me in many different ways towards living a life that is more in alignment with your word. I'm grateful to have brothers and sisters who are sincere, though imperfect. God, we are all deeply flawed. None of us would say that we have it all together. There are times, God, where we um, attach special significance to a place or a time or a day. God, there are times where we worship you not in truth. But God, I, I do thank you, Lord, for bringing me into a group of believers, Lord, who, who challenge those notions when they arise and who live them out faithfully and truly. Father, we know from your word, we know from what Jesus said that we must worship you in this way and that you are seeking worshipers who worship you in this way. So, Father, I pray that by the Holy Spirit you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, I'm grateful for your word and thankful for the church family that you have brought around us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.